I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Twelve forty-five. State my assumptions. One, mathematics is the language of nature. Two, everything around us can be represented and understood through numbers. Three. If you graph the numbers of any system, patterns emerge. Therefore, there are patterns everywhere in nature. You hear Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism. Insomnia haunts him, and he twists and turns. Maybe that pattern is like the pattern in the stock market, the Torah. I have to get that number. This is insanity. You are only a vessel from our God. Restate my assumptions. One, mathematics is the language of nature. Two, everything around us can be represented and understood through numbers. Three. If you graph the numbers of any system, patterns emerge. Therefore, there are patterns everywhere in nature. There will be no order, only chaos. Just don't give enough data. 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 That I should think you'd be so glad to have all this material. But how to use it, dearly? But how to use it? But how to use it? How to use it? And yet it goes on and on and on. Now I know too much and find it hard to make out any patterns. And if you think going one on one with the Prince of Darkness is sticky, ooh, wait until you see the rest of the characters. How do you go about getting an exorcism? The only thing that makes reality is death. Then they hang it on a cross and kneel down and pray to it. That's the only reality they understand. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. And good luck. 
lot of people don't realize what's really going on. They view life as a bunch of unconnected incidents and things. They don't realize that there's this like lattice of coincidence that lays on top of everything. Out there somewhere is like, you know, Jack Armstrong, Superman. It's all just as real as you are, and I am. And the Lord and the angels in heaven, how about them? What do you think they're the figment of somebody's imagination? Huh. Nobody makes up anything. There is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind in living color on WTDR. Wow. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. Each one of those images was electronically based. I can't remember when I've been so moved. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. guest is Eric Davis. He's a journalist, scholar, and the author of Technosis, Myth, Magic, and Mysticism in the Age of Information. And his latest book is High Weirdness, Drugs, Esoterica, and Visionary Experience in the 70s, which focuses on the extraordinary experiences and work of Terence McKenna, Philip K. Dick, and Robert Anton Wilson during the 1970s. Well, first off, I really enjoyed this book. Great. The 70s were my playground. I missed out, or I was too young to really appreciate the 60s. So the 70s were where I started exploring all this stuff, mysticism, psychedelics. I read the Illuminatus Trilogy, Carlos Castaneda, John Lilly's Center of the Cyclone, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, with Ralph Steadman's incredible artwork. I was also doing a lot of intensive meditation and psycho-spiritual work. And also while in high school, 
I was reading through my father's bookshelves, and he had the Confessions of Aleister Crowley, as well as Mysticism of Tibet, and listening to his early Frank Zappa records. So you got it all. Not all of it. Transmission. Yeah, and during my one and a half semesters of college, I dived into Taoism via Chuang Tzu with the aid of LSD. Plus, when I was a child in the late 60s, I was having a series of really intense hypnagogic experiences, Mm. which I actually talked a bit about with your wife a couple of months ago when I interviewed her, which was a wonderful interview. Excellent. Yeah, it's great stuff. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So you've written a lot about the convergence of mysticism and information technology. And I thought before we define and get into high weirdness, or even perhaps as a way of getting into high weirdness, what is it about mystical experience and information and networking technology that's so interesting to you? Well, I think partly from the perspective of high weirdness, well, I mean, both Technosis and, and High Weirdness are, are in some ways very historical books. And part of it is that I'm just interested in digging into the reasons, and these might be historical or technological or institutional or perhaps metaphysical and cosmic, but the reason that these two very different discourses and practices on the surface became commingled, particularly in California, and particularly in the era that we're talking about, though not by any means exclusively. And in a way that now people recognize as being actually, you know, fundamental to the whole development, particularly of information technology in the last couple of decades. And so that just kind of drove me, like, what brought these things together? And I think you know, other than just the conjunction, the fact that there were people who were exploring, you know, the edge realms of consciousness culture in the 70s who were also interested in technology. I mean, in a way, that's just sort of a generational conjunction, but one that had very powerful, lasting impacts that continue to some degree today, although more in a sort of disappointing key because a lot of the more democratic impulses that were associated with the countercultural use of technology, I think have been radically muted by big capitalism. But in any case, there's something also just about the sense that there's a systems-oriented aspect to at least modern mysticism, something that's bigger than the self, or something about the relationship, experiencing the relationship of the self to the environment. There's a part in one of Robert Anton Wilson's books where he says, well, yeah, I mean, it's a common thing for people on psychedelics to sort of say, oh, they're one with everything or they experience this cosmic oneness and that's great, great, that's fine but there's another way of describing it which is just you become aware of how reality is not just yourself moving through an environment but that you and the environment are absolutely coupled. And so there's a kind of systems thinking that goes along with at least a certain kind of mysticism that grew up, it became very strong in the West, partly through invi- like transcendentalism, the idea of nature and the environment as being a site of a spiritual encounter, partly through Taoism and Zen and the kind of earthiness of that form of mysticism and all the stories about streams and objects and trees and 
the sort of naturalism that goes along with that Chinese kind of spirituality that you can find in both those traditions, and then a kind of cybernetic experience. So here we're moving into technology. So, you know, if you take the acid test of Ken Kesey in the 1960s, what are they doing? They're not just taking acid, they're also exploring all the analog technology and how to use it to create a very different kind of environment. So you, you wire up the room with lots of speakers and microphones, and they're run through tape loops, and the band's playing over here, but the sound's coming over there, and then you use lots of projectors and film projectors and you know other kinds of light effects to create a surround sound of multiple information feeds and patterns which kind of seed the ground for a kind of ecstatic, it all fits together, synchronicity meltdown, you know, and that was very much the technological mode of the acid test. But they all kind of relate in terms of breaking out of the single self and seeing the self as part of a larger circuit that Gregory Bateson, who was a cybernetician and you know, systems thinker, called Mind at Large. And these ideas really become kind of dominant in the 70s. I don't talk too much about them in this book, but they're a really important backdrop that connects the emergence of networks, of computer networks, the idea of the utopian ideas about computer networks with the growing ecological orientation, you know, fed by the environmental crisis, but also fed by the spiritual sense that reality, that the more than human reality takes the form of a sort of system that's as much imminent as it is transcendent. So you use the term coupling of these elements, and the way I've thought about it and talked about it is this continual, like, dialogue going on between us and our environment and everything in it in all its different changing forms. Is that what you mean? Yeah, it actually, the term comes from... Maturana and Varela, who were kind of systems thinkers who were trying to understand consciousness in terms of, and, as, and, and biological, um, how, how do you understand the difference between individuals and the environment and the environment itself, and how do you create a theory to explain that? And they talk about this sort of coupling, where what's interesting about like being, they call them autopoetic, entities, you know, things that are self-making, like we, you know, we have just a little bit of protoplasm, and then the protoplasm develops into, you know, a fetus, and the fetus is a baby, and then the baby, you know, down the line is a, you know, five-foot, 11-inch human being that has a boundary. And on the one hand, we couldn't live if there wasn't passage of things across the boundary, you know, air, information, (laughs) food, you know, we're permeable, but we're also, in some ways, separate, but we're not purely separate. So how do you talk about that boundary? And one of the ways they talk about that was they call it structural coupling. So there's always a relationship across the boundary, but there is still a boundary. And part of the trick is to characterize that boundary. And I think that's one of the tricks, if you will, of seeing in that ecological way. Right. People also talk about in terms of like fractal boundaries, the very porous, not quite as linear as people tend to make them out to be or to think them to be. Absolutely, yeah. It's all totally, totally fascinating stuff, the kind of stuff that we we get to live out. 
continually, constantly. Yeah, that's, you know, I think part of what we're called upon to do as individuals is to become kind of more aware of that boundary and the relations with the environmental world, not just the natural environment, but the technological environment, the cultural environment, architectural environment, all of it is like, is is constantly shifting who we are. And so part of the trick is getting out of the dude inside the head who's sitting behind the levers and controls (laughs) and bring that more towards the boundary where the real encounter happens. Right. So um, let's get to high weirdness. And what do you mean by the term high weirdness and how is it distinct from, let's say, common everyday weirdness? Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, first what I try to do is talk about what is common everyday weirdness because it's not so common or rather, even though we often use the term, we don't think about it too much or we don't understand where it comes from. So first I want to kind of tell a story about the weird, which is a kind of aesthetic or even like cultural mode, a genre, if you will, of like certain kinds of stories or images, but also a way of talking about anomalies that happen in our experience. Oh, it was really weird. You know, I was thinking about something just when it happened or, you know, I, was, I just thought of my old friend and he called just at that moment. It was really weird. Like we characterize sort of uncanny or anomalous experiences using the word. And then we also talk about people as being weird. And usually that means they're, they're kind of a little bit on the edge. They're marginal. Maybe they're challenging or even perverse. Oh, they're weirdos. Bunch of weirdos over there. And so we use the term in a lot of different ways. So I lay out at the beginning, I lay out kind of a history of the term or an archaeology of the term is probably a better way to say it. And then what I'm saying, what, what happens in high weirdness is that those various mechanisms all get intensified. And it's a pun, obviously, because I mean high weirdness kind of like high seas, you know, like intense and deep. But also, I'm, of course, I'm referring to, you know, getting high, that there's a, a drug dimension of this. And that one feature of drugs, and particularly psychedelic drugs, is that they can deliver one into the deeps of the weird. And that's what happens to at least two of the main three characters that I'm writing about in the book, Terrence McKenna and Robert Anton Wilson. And Philip K. Dick's kind of a different case, he, though he was influenced by drugs and drug culture of the 60s and had taken psychedelics. He had his experiences more on the natch, and he was a you know, non-neurotypical fellow who had a lot of very difficult mental problems but he also had a, a kind of visionary slash psychotic or whatever you want to call it capacity that was very, very important to his work as well as to his own kind of religious thinking, his own visionary thinking. So high weirdness could definitely happen to people without drugs. One of the places you find that term used today, often high strangeness as well, is in UFO accounts. So people are telling you, like, yeah, I was going down the street, I was in my car, and, and I saw this blinky thing, and I started hearing this electronic sound, and then the high strangers began, and, like, just missing time, or just, you know, an encounter with a creature, or there's a warp, and then, like, five hours later, the guy wakes up, and like, what happened? Or, you know, when things peak, if, if you will. So it's not just a drug term, which is why I kind of wanted to have those two meanings there. But the other thing I'm doing is that the phrase high weirdness comes from a book by Reverend Ivan Stang of the Church of the Subgenius. And the Church of the Subgenius is a kind of parody religion, is what some people call it when they talk about it, although it's more tricky than that, I think. 
but it's sort of a mock religion with, you know, its own eschatology and gods and demons, and a lot of it's very funny and satirical, making fun of both religion and American culture and capitalism. And it grows very much out of the kind of discordian religion or quasi-religion that is an important part of my book, particularly in, in terms of Robert Anton Wilson. So the phrase high weirdness kind of comes out of the very stream that I'm talking about, and what Stang meant by the term, he was writing in, in a book called High Weirdness by Mail, was basically how you can just sort of enjoy and encounter the highly weird in your life by, at that point, subscribing through the mails, this is the 1980s, to all sorts of fringe publications and fringe groups, religious groups, New Age groups, weird Christian groups, technology groups, this whole kind of fringe or marginal world that these days is now sort of found in the Internet and so isn't really fringe anymore because everything's kind of available in a similar way. But in the 1980s, there was very much of a sense of this being in the underground or being on the fringe. So it also has that sensibility, this sort of fascination with, enjoyment, puzzlement with these sort of extreme experiences without necessarily believing them or believing that they're true, but at the same time finding them very important or at least really fascinating. I remember those old catalogs that used to come in the mail that would usually have around 150 to 200 synopses of these various trips that people were cooking up, religions or philosophies or groups or, or whatever. And I remember spending some time leafing through it and reading all these things. And what... What is it about these kind of things that was attracting people back then? Well, I think one way of talking about the 70s is called what remains after the counterculture is a combination of creativity and a sort of restless seeking, a kind of almost desperate seeking in some ways. You mean like people and were so, left high and dry after yeah, kind of like the failure. That's what I think. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a, you know, some people said, oh, yeah, that's an old story. I didn't get to it about the 70s. And I'm like, yeah, I, think, I still think it's pretty good. I read a lot of sociology uh, behind this book. You know, so a lot of not just historians, but people analyzing it sociologically and doing surveys and trying to kind of map the development of individuals through these social changes. And that's a pretty persistent sense that there was a kind of high and dry, almost literally, like you're blasted out of the norm because you've gone through all these countercultural experiences, but now the world's changing and it doesn't look like the world's going to transform in an instant into a paradise or, or communist, socialist, you know, global government or whatever the vision was. Instead, we have to make our way through, you know, tacky, anxious, economically unstable, environmentally problematic America. So what are we going to do? And so people's ingenuity comes in and their desire and their fantasy, all of which are blasted out by the wildness of the countercultural experience. So it's a perfect time for new religious movements and new psychotherapies and new cults and new cultural practices and new subcultures. So in a way, it's an extremely creative time. But I think that creativity takes place in a sort of, you know, in a spirit of intense seeking and there's always a sort of, there's a desperateness in seeking or an aimlessness or an existential 
problem that almost can't be worked out for the seeking to continue. <laughs> so that's the sort of flip side of it, and it really is a, an era of seekers. Even in mainstream religion, there's a famous sociologist who talks about this, even within Christianity, even within the mainstream, there's a shift between a kind of religion of the home and the hearth towards a religion of seeking, where people are looking for a new experience or a new idea or a new practice, or a new teacher, and they kind of move through all of these exploding possibilities because, of course, all sorts of people, entrepreneurs, other seekers, were inventing new ways, you know, so Castaneda is an invention. We know it's an invention. We knew by the time the third book is out, there's already an awareness that he's kind of making it up. But it doesn't matter because fictions or inventions are now seen to be a source of creativity and transformative possibility in themselves. And that's one of the main themes of high weirdness is how fictions become real. And in that sense, it looks forward to our own, in some ways, far darker <laughs> experience today with the liveliness of fictions in the Internet and the post-truth world and the conspiracy theory, mainstreaming, and you know all of those kinds of elements. I think a lot of that stuff actually comes from these more underground or subcultural innovations in the 70s. Yeah, that's a really fascinating area to explore and to talk about. Perhaps we could start by talking about the Discordians and that Operation Mind kind of thing and how they were, and others also were, were getting into this pranking culture of freaky disruptors. Yeah, I think that that's an important part of the counterculture. And by the counterculture, I mean the 60s, even a little bit into the late 50s. But definitely a major part of the 60s was a kind of prankster culture. So we call the Merry Pranksters, Ken Kesey. You know, what were they doing? They're not going to tell you. you got to just explore it. you got to have your own experience of it. They're screwing around with expectations. They're being goofy. They're playing up the trickster side of things, generally in a friendly way, but not always. And so there's that element of the counterculture that's a prankster element. And then that's a very strong political dimension to it as the 60s roll on. The example is the, the yippies, you know, with Jerry Rubin. And then these guys are consciously doing pranks, partly to draw attention from the media, partly, and then through that to satirize in a very visible way you know, the sort of pillars of mainstream American society. So there's a campaign to elect a pig for president. They go into the New York Stock Exchange and throw $20 bills everywhere, $1 bills everywhere, and, like, watch all the traders, like, go after the money. Or they have a ritual to elevate the Pentagon in 67. So there's this kind of prankster politics, which are politics, but they're they're not sober, earnest, you know, militant about ideology, they're militant about fun, or they're militant about radical experience, or about the power of people to have spontaneous events occur. They're militant about psychedelics, and all of this stuff is very psychedelic. So there's this prankster side. The Discordians were kind of a much more quiet, very, very quiet, basically completely obscure movement in the 1960s that really was just a few handful of people who 
we're picking up on similar vibes, the prankster spirit, a certain kind of psychedelic spirituality, a certain kind of radical politics. There was a discordant world that was more libertarian than it was leftist. But the libertarian side of the counterculture is really important, even particularly to the first question we talked about, the relationship between information technology and the counterculture, that part of what happened was there was a sort of libertarian spirit in the counterculture. People should be able to do what they want. They should be able to explore and make their own worlds. They should be free to do so. That kind of spirit was very much inspiring the Discordians as well, as well as Zen and Taoism. It was kind of like American Zen in, in some ways. But they would have probably remained an extremely obscure group were it not for Robert Anton Wilson, who discovered them in the very end of the 60s and started to weave their lore and the sensibility into his Illuminati book, which comes out in 1975. And it is, you know, pretty influential, at least in the underground, and really kind of spreads the ideas about Discordianism, which other people pick up and have also been developing throughout the 1970s and become sort of, you know, part of the galaxy of zines and underground publications and definitely influence things like the Church of the Subgenius. So it's a relatively small group of people, but their ideas are big, and they continue to speak for this kind of prankster, libertarian side of the counterculture that is willing to do pranks. And in the case of, you mentioned Operation Mind, I don't want to go into the whole story about Carrie Thornley, who was one of the Discordian guys, and his relationship to Jim Garrison and the Kennedy said, blah, 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 you know, there's a whole big, super crazy, very 60s, very synchronicity story that I tell in the book. But basically, they wanted to prank this prosecutor's office, and they discovered that one of the people who were part of the team believed in the Illuminati. They believed that there was this secret society called the Illuminati that was mucking with American politics and culture. And so they started to plant fake news items in magazines and ultimately in a, a letter to Playboy where they were sort of fulfilling this guy's fantasy by providing more information that seemed to suggest that the Illuminati were real and that they were behind all these major events in the 1960s. So it was playing games with truth and fantasy in a way to lead people on. So it was a prank. And it has a little bit of the meanness of a prank. You know, pranks are they're a little mean, not always. But often, and sometimes they're really mean. And that's part of the question. is like, what is the ethics of pranking? And they called this operation, Operation Mindfuck. And Mindfuck is a real interesting term. It's dark. It's pranky. It's, it has a little bit of illumination in it, too. It, it very much expresses something about this prankster spirituality or prankster metaphysics, prankster politics, where part of the goal is to break, get people out of their conventional mind or fool them in a way to lead them to some other kind of experience, whether it's, you know, kind of in a, in a more negative way or critical way of attacking people, but it's also a way of through a mind f you can have your mind blown or you can have your mind opened up. So there's almost a kind of prankster satori buried in the idea of a mind f uh, so, you know, like the Castaneda books they would talk about, that these discordian folks, they would say, oh yeah, it was the mind fuck. You know, it's like a good thing, too. So that edge of good and bad, of positive and negative, of, of sort of dark and also an illumination, that's very much 
a, a kind of line that I'm tracing in high weirdness, and the Discordians kind of absorbed it, and, you know, to what was in many ways a religion of life and love and laughter. It's a very exuberant kind of approach, but it has this sort of prankster quality. Yeah, and you mentioned the term libertarian doesn't jibe with the current meaning of libertarian. No. Your use of libertarian is much more what I would call, you know, anarchism. That's true. There's a couple of reasons I use it. One is that historians of American libertarianism will definitely talk about these guys. Anarchism is totally an equally appropriate word. They would use the term themselves, you know, part of the religion of discordianism is really a religion of chaos, of anarch, of no order, in that almost etymological sense. And it is certainly true that libertarianism today, you know, doesn't feature many of these uh, countercultural elements to it anymore. But at the same time, and especially Robert Anton Wilson would more generally think of himself as a libertarian or a right-wing anarchist, meaning not right-wing like, you know, nasty conservatives, but just meaning that it was more about the individual than it was about social or collective forms. I mean, in many ways, the yippies were kind of left anarchists. And so there's many, many shades of it. And anarchism is a perfectly good way to talk about it. But I think by saying libertarian, it roots discordianism in a more specific historical development, because they did come out of that stuff, like some of the architects of discordianism. They were Ayn Rand people before. You know, they weren't Proudhon people. They were Ayn Rand people. So it, it actually does emerge from a more American libertarian right-wing sense of resistance to government. And I kind of highlighted that because it's a more interesting story. And it's a story we don't tell as much, you know. Think politically about the counterculture. We think of the left. We think of movement politics. Maybe we think of a sort of anarchistic culture. If you're just joining us, my guest is Eric Davis. He's a journalist, scholar, and the author of Technosis, Myth, Magic, and Mysticism in the Age of Information. And his latest book that we're talking about is High Weirdness, Drugs, Esoterica, and Visionary Experience in the 70s, which focuses on the extraordinary experiences and work of Terence McKenna, Philip K. Dick, and Robert Anton Wilson during the 1970s. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. So this individualist kind of counterculture, what's manifesting in our current political scene with a new kind of mind f It's not a creative thing so much as it's a kind of attempt to reestablish and re-entrench the old guard. Yeah, I think it's a very different kind of individual. And these guys want to, you know, be free. And they wanted uh, to disrupt the yeah. old paradigm, whereas the current movement is about reinstating it in a kind of a, a desperate way where, where it's no holds barred, anything goes. Yeah, we're in a very different mode now. And talking about my book, it's always a little tricky because you can see all the connections, but there's also a lot of things that have changed really significantly and almost inverted. You know, it's not the people calling for a new world 
who are using these games of trickery and breakdowns of fact and fantasy. It's the other guys. <laughs> in fact, it's almost inverted, you know, on the surface anyway. You know, the left is, you know, that's the serious one. That's the earnest one. That's where... Right, they're crying foul. They're crying foul. You know, they've got critiques of everybody and whatever. And so the right is now the counterculture. They're the jokesters. They're the ones using conspiracy theories in a prankster way to screw with people, to bait people, to troll people, essentially. And so it's not that the Discordians were trolls. They weren't trolls, but there's an element there that then as political conditions change and partly as you know progressive ideas get established into mainstream media which is true you know new york times is largely progressive in the kind of neoliberal sense and that as those values do get sort of installed into media then it allows for a new generation of media pranksters from the right to appropriate these tools some of them were already kind of you know, in the current, and then to do so for you know much more nefarious goals. So it's a very ambiguous story. What I'm telling you—that's the thing. Is people think I'm like, what are you? Are you saying it's good? Are you saying it's bad? I'm like, no. I'm just I'm trying to tell a story about these undercurrents. And when you go into these undercurrent realms, things get shadowy and ambiguous, and you got to just sort of try to figure out what's going on and not jump to conclusions too fast. But, you know, in some ways I am telling a kind of prehistory of our current sort of consensus reality meltdown. Yes, and there's a very interesting line toward the end of the book where you write that a deep familiarity with psychedelics gives us an unusually valuable tool or skill to navigate the effects of all our hypermediating technologies. Yeah, I do believe that, or at least I, I like to say <laughs> I'd love for you to flesh that out and explain that as you see it. Well, I think there's a couple of ways. One is that you get used to things not being normal anymore. You get used to the we're not in Kansas anymore moment. And, you know, we're not in Kansas anymore. I mean, as a culture, as a country, as a creature, (laughs) you know, things are not going to go back to, like, normal. You know, it's just going to get weirder. You know, if we manage to not kill each other and destroy the world, technology is going to become extremely strange and the insidious conjunction of technology with capitalism, consumer capitalism with, you know, what do they call surveillance capitalism, that's going to just get totally weird, even if climate change doesn't destroy us or nuclear war doesn't destroy us or, you know, all the other things we're talking about, like, we're in a weird place now. And I think that psychedelics teach you that you can navigate through places of strangeness unfamiliarity, fear, destabilization, and that there are resources within you, within your relationship to people, to other people, within your relationship with nature, with the cosmos in general, that can open up even in the midst of unsettling experiences. You also become more attuned to the way that the mind's ideas about reality shape the experience of reality. If you're paying attention with psychedelics, that's one of the things you start to notice, oh, wait, if I go in here with this idea, then things seem to start to go that way. Oh, wait, but if I just suspend the idea or interject another idea or leap into another whole dimension, things change. And that's one of the things that's happening now is that the stories we're telling about reality are accelerated, more powerful, 
and more seductive in a way. So the, the conspiracy theories that were once marginalized because most people would go, what are you talking about? That's ridiculous. Like, what? That they are now, you know, weaponized or intensified so that they're much more appealing. They make a lot more sense. Why? Because consensus, the sense of the normal reality, is disappearing. So people are like, whoa, what's going on? Well, it could be anything. So in a way, the whole situation is getting a little more psychedelic, mind-manifesting, story-manifesting. And sophisticated psychedelic users are aware of this. And you can use it, and you can avoid getting trapped by it to a degree. So I do think psychedelics can also just give us a sense of the intensification of a lot of these developments. So Burning Man is a great example. It's a very kind of psychedelic place. The fact that Burning Man was once incredibly countercultural, underground, marginal, almost unimaginable, and now is a sort of feature of just cultural possibilities. You know, it's mentioned in The Economist and Wall Street Journal, and people go, and, you know, heads of Google go, and, you know, a lot of people go because there's something about it that seems to point towards an aspect of the larger culture that is both exciting and, you know, attractive and symptomatic of other things that are happening. So, yeah, it's become a kind of more general language for the now. And connected to all that, you write about constructivism and the constructivist nature of reality, how, well, Rushkoff's book, um, Concept of Program or Be Programmed, you know, in a sense, we are all creating reality. We're creating our own fictions and taking them for reality. And as you were saying, talking about psychedelics, one of the things that psychedelics tend to do for at least some of us is to give us this kind of more vertical perspective to oversee the nature of the way the mind sees things, creates things, and structures things, and creates what it calls reality or what we call reality, when in a sense it's all fiction. Yeah, I think another dimension is back to the first part of our discussion was another aspect of psychedelics is I think they bring you into a more visceral awareness of those self-environment couplings. There's a systems view implicit in psychedelics, which is probably why they often lead to senses of unity or senses of intimacy and connection with nature, with the whole system that you're within. They kind of encourage that sort of thinking technologically as well, since a lot of technology also has its own ecology, its own systems thinking. So the fact that there's an influence from the psychedelic counterculture onto you know, the computer industry is no accident. I think there's some ways in which it actually allows you to see that dimension. So it's, again, kind of, kind of ambiguous because it can just sort of feed into our existing, you know, surveillance capitalist system in a weird way. And it seems to provide alternatives and certainly opportunities for reconnecting the self and, you know, sort of processing the trauma of our strange moment as well. So... That's where we are. Yeah, and Philip K. Dick, he's like a perfect example of how that can manifest in one's life. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he's, uh, I, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> well, yeah, I think this is probably a good place to start amongst your three main protagonists of this book because you really studied him. You worked as an editor on his Exegesis, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yes. 
And he was really living out that dichotomy of swinging wildly from various types of psychosis and paranoia, conspiracy thinking, to these highly integrative mystical experiences. Yeah, I think that's the case of Philip K. Dick. You know, it's, it's a very interesting case study, if you will, because I don't think you can just put it under psychosis or mental problems, even though that was clearly part of the picture, unquestionably. I mean, the exegesis alone, if that's all you had, you'd go, this guy is clearly struggling. He's obsessive. He's paranoid a lot of the time. He's sometimes devastatingly unhappy, suicidal even. And yet, woven through that is not just the yearning for higher order or mystical experience, but the clear expression of what we mean by more positive forms of religious experience or mind expansion or, you know, cosmic connection, cosmic consciousness. So he, yeah, he really kind of lived, you know, the whole spectrum of things. And that's what I think makes him particularly interesting from a, like a religious studies point of view. Right. And I didn't discover him until the movie Blade Runner. And I loved Blade Runner, and I've always loved science fiction films. It's interesting that I wasn't particularly drawn to science fiction literature. I read a fair amount of it, but often found them disappointing. But the films, they did something. It's almost like doing psychedelics in a way that, to me, they spoke to me at the level of the kind of mystical experiences that I would have with psychedelics. Yeah, that's an important connection. That's one of the things that unites the dudes that I, uh, or the three dead white guys, as I like to say, that I write about is they're all super science fictional. I mean, you know, Dick wrote science fiction. Robert Anton Wilson, to a degree, did. There are science fictional elements to Illuminatus. I think it was even classified as a science fiction, even though in a lot of ways it's more like weird fiction. And Terrence McKenna as well was deeply influenced by science fiction, and a lot of his psychedelic visions took the form of future speculation about a transcendental object at the end of time that was kind of a UFO, it was kind of a philosopher's stone, it was a portal into a galactic universe. I mean, he experienced the, the mushroom voice as a kind of galactic force that was entering into you know the planetary reality. So they all had a very future-oriented science fictional dimension to their psychedelic mysticism. Yes, and I love listening to Terence McKenna speak. I loved many of his ideas. As a critically thinking writer and scholar, how did you separate? I mean, you obviously are taking all of this stuff very seriously, but at the same time, you're not taking it too literally. I mean, yeah, that's the phrase I used there. And so, in a way, it's partly more like literary criticism, where you're like reading poetry. How does this poem work? If it works, how does it work? Okay, what are the ideas that's motivating it? Oh, what are the ideologies that are hidden beneath it? Let's break it apart and appreciate it, you know, respect it, but then also kind of read it and understand where it's coming from. And, you know, that's sort of my approach. So a lot of people are kind of puzzled by Terrence. I mean, if you're not the kind of people who like Terrence, forget it. When you read it, you're like, what is this stuff? Like, is it, these aren't really useful ideas. They're not really arguments, exactly. I mean, sometimes Terrence thought they were, and sometimes they weren't. And 
And sometimes, it's, you know, he also really knew that he just had a gift of gab. He had an ability to speculate, to weave language and concept together into almost like a Joycean word jam. You know, he was more like a freestyle rapper than a philosopher, but he used philosophical material, he used esoteric material, he used a little bit of science. And so it's hard to judge even, like, what he did. Like, what is that stuff? I mean, other than telling the story about what happened in the jungle in the early 1970s, that's a, a sort of personal tale or, a, you know, high weird tale that he, you know, often referred to. But when he was speculating, when he was riffing, that's what he was doing. He was riffing. He was a cannabis thinker. You know, he was just going with the flow. And there were ideas in that and some of them very inspiring. But I think, it, you know, it was... It was even complicated for him because he knew that his, you know, his fans were Terrence McKenna fans. Most of them weren't that critical thinkers. Most of them weren't as educated as he was. And they tended to take it all, I wouldn't say literally, although plenty of them did take it literally. But as he put it one time, he talked about like his job was really just to give permission. You know, he was basically saying, go ahead, have high-dose experiences, go down the weird rabbit hole, wrestle with the metaphysics, wrestle with the possibility that we're hurtling towards the end of time or in relationship with extraterrestrial beings or whatever, whatever weirdness comes up, go ahead, it's okay. It's okay, kid. You know, you're not going to be the first. But he also really wanted, I think, to be taken seriously. Certainly his argument theory, he wanted to take it seriously and he tried to write a book that was a serious book. But because of who he was, that wasn't really going to happen. And I think that was difficult for him. So he sort of suffered in some ways at the junction of being a kind of, you know, poetic, freestyle, psychedelic rapper and a philosopher, a thinker, someone who was really wrestling with the nature of reality, which he also did. It's just that he did it in the mode of more of a poet than as a systematic thinker. And there's not a lot of room for that in are kind of genres of expression. I mean, it's hard. Where do you put Terrence McKenna? Who is like Terrence McKenna? I mean, he's kind of like a stand-up comedian. He's kind of like a storyteller. He's kind of like a underground philosopher. He's kind of like a magician. You know, it's a very strange mix that I think, you know, his very career, you know, later on, the very kind of weirdness of his career is, psychedelics like that's what psychedelics are is that they at least at that point they slip between the cracks they draw between different genres there's not like a psychedelic genre in that sense there might be a style of painting or a style of you know playing guitar and it's psychedelic but conceptually it's hard to locate these days things have changed a lot so it's a different story once again but during his lifetime i think he really embodied the ambiguities ambivalences of psychedelics as a mixture of science and philosophical exploration and fiction and bullshit and fantasy. And he was sort of riding that flow in a way that some of us really enjoyed. Some of us found it troubling and some people just have no, have no time for it. Yeah. I, I loved that, that aspect of him. I think he, he did it all simultaneously in his later years and you had a moment of breaking up as you were mentioning his stoned ape theory, which to me makes a lot of sense and to me fits with what's been happening in the last half century on the planet. And he had a phrase that he used often that 
I really like, and that was Take Back Your Mind. Yeah, Take Back Your Mind, definitely. I mean, it's funny, the Stone Ape Theory, like I think of it as kind of a intriguing but sort of elusive and a bit stoned of a theory. And then just the other couple of months ago, I, someone was talking about it. And I was like, let's go see what the, the academics are saying. And there's a small but growing academic discussion, probably directly traceable to the increasing visibility of psychedelics, the mainstreaming of psychedelics in public discourse. But there's a movement, or if you will, I don't know, it's probably too strong a term, but there's definitely a number of scholars who are really seriously considering psychedelics in terms of the evolution of human, the early evolution of human consciousness using archaeology, et cetera, et cetera. So there's some, you know, more robust support for the Stone Date theory these days, and it seems altogether appropriate for our psychedelic moment. I would love for you to talk about Walter Rathenau. I don't know how you would pronounce his last name. I think that's how you pronounce it. His uncanny method of seeking truth in this realm of weirdness and his two questions that he said must be asked, what is synthesis and what is the real nature of control and how that, how that fits into all of this. Sure, this. sure. So I think it's important to set that one up. That was a scene and two questions that have been haunting me since I first read Gravity's Rainbow, which is where they come from, in uh, the summer of 1986. And Gravity's Rainbow was incredibly influential to me. It's all through high weirdness, although I only talk about it a few times. You know, Gravity's Rainbow appears in the early 1970s. It's written in the early 1970s. It's very much grappling with a lot of the elements. And in some ways, it's kind of like a highbrow Illuminatus, or Illuminatus is a lowbrow gravity's rainbow. There's a lot of similarities into a certain kind of postmodern humor and song lyrics and conspiracies and UFOs and Nazis and, you know, visionary experiences. You know, Pynchon's always been very interested in these extraordinary experiences that I'm so attracted to. So in many ways, I'm deeply influenced by Pynchon, although I've never really written about him at length. And this is a scene that happens in Gravity's Rainbow, where these German industrialists go to a seance and they meet this spirit of Rathenau and he tells them and there's a few other things he says before those questions but I think the most important one is that secular history is a diversionary tactic what does he mean? He means that if we try to explain history only in terms of secular history we're going to miss something and this has always been incredibly important because I love history you know High Weirdness is a historical book Technosis is a historical book. Most of my other work is in some ways bound up with uncovering and retelling stories that are embedded in time. I very much respect the flow of time of material history, like historians. But I'm driven also by the suspicion that this is not enough. <laughs> and that even though we can historicize the spirits or historicize religious experience, historicize the weirdness, that there still needs to let in the ambiguities and ambivalences and even the enchantments, the ecstasies of these things into our story to sort of destabilize it. And what I like about Raphael's statement is he's not saying it from a religious perspective. He's saying you're not going to get to the answers of what's really going on in the modern world with technology, with industrial development, with chemistry, which is partly what he's talking about, but with the sort of emergence of this system of modernity and post-modernity and whatever the heck we're in now, 
You're not going to get there just through paying attention to secular history. You have to go into the world of the weird. And of course, the spirit talking in a seance. So he's already proving the point in a way. And then he asks these two questions. He says to really get to the heart of things, you have to ask what is the nature of synthesis and what is the real nature of control? And synthesis for me isn't just about industrial synthesis, which is kind of what he's talking about. What does it mean to make new matter? What does it mean to either, based on a natural occurring compound, create a synthetic version of it where you produce the same effects by synthesizing it analytically in a laboratory? But even more generally, what does it mean to put things together in a way where they make something new? What is the nature of novelty, as Terence McKenna would say, as it emerges? What does that tell us about reality, that novelty can occur, that synthesis things come together and new, genuinely new things, things that have never happened in the history of the world, still occur? And, of course, we're in a glut of novelty today, but we're, we're recognizing that it's certainly not enough. You know, it doesn't help <laughs> after a certain point. It makes things worse, probably. So we're really grappling with that. You know, what does it mean to make a synthetic culture, if you will? But I think an even more important question is what is the nature of control? And that's where things get really interesting politically, paranoically, conspiratorially, mystically, psychologically. Like, where is the pivot of control? You know, I think I'm control. I make a decision. Where did that decision come from? Maybe it comes from, you know, DNA playing its game and the my idea that I'm making a decision is totally hooey. It comes from the natural facts of my organism's coupling with my environment, let's say. Or we can be cultural theorists and we say, ah, oh, it comes from an ideology, and an ideology that's embedded in our cultural system that makes me think that I'm an agent that is making certain kinds of decisions. Or you go and go up, you know, orders of control. Who is controlling the Internet? Where does the control lie in the Internet? Is it in the boardroom at Google? Is it in the hacker labs of, you know, Eastern Europe where the spam farms come from? Is it me as an active agent who's making decisions on the Internet about what I'm going to see and what I'm going to not see? Is it, you know, the guys who invent the latest algorithms? Like, who controls it? Does the government control it? And so part of the problem of systems thinking, and again, we're going back to that first question, one of the problems of systems thinking is once you recognize that the agent, the individual, the person, is embedded in these larger ecologies within which mind is distributed, control is also distributed. So you talked about Taoism earlier. I mean, Taoism is about how one aspect is how do you as an individual who's making decisions doing this or doing that, how do you align with this, in a sense, deeper control system of nature or the Tao so that you're in alignment with it, you're not working against it anymore. So this question of control is super powerful, and it's really scary to ask because to ask it, you have to start to believe that you're not as in control, perhaps not nearly as in control as you think you are, and we don't want that. The whole story right now is that we're in control, even though we know we're not. You know, I'm controlling this, and I'm getting my new device, and my new device enables me to manage my time and be able to allocate resources, find out the best information so I can make the most informed decisions about my future. That is bullshit. 
It's so much more complicated than that. But yet we don't know where else to go because we're still sitting here feeling like we're responsible agents, which we are. You know, we make a mistake. You know, we hit somebody with our car. We're responsible. Oh, it's the car's fault. And so these issues of control and responsibility, they just run through the whole modern condition, psychology, and that's conspiracy. Conspiracy is, I know who's really in control. There's a boardroom somewhere where the heads of the 22 supreme families on Earth are making decisions about the future apocalypse or something, or the chemtrails, or the lizard people, or the Illuminati. And so part of the attraction of conspiracy theory is that you, you acknowledge that on the surface, we don't know what's going on. We don't know who's in control. Looks like nobody's in control. But there is actually control somewhere. It's just off the screen, or it's behind the veil. And in a weird way, even though it's creepy and manipulative, even demonic, there's a sense of satisfaction in knowing that someone, somewhere someone's got control. That's, in the end, less scary than the highly distinct possibility that the Discordians were right, it's a chaos, and nobody's really in control. Those simplistic kind of solutions to any problem are always so seductive. And I think that's one of the things that psychedelics helps us with, that psychedelics broadens our perspective out of those tunnels of reality. Yeah, you loosen control. You have to loosen control. And you have to trust that control, to a degree, comes back, that it's not like by losing control you become a puppet, although for a time you might feel like one. But sometimes it's, I think, important to look at your ordinary personality as a puppet of forces that you don't understand. It can be disempowering, but in the long run it feeds greater empowerment or greater insight because we do get to see on psychedelics sometimes. Sometimes the more difficult experiences involve seeing our own mechanicalness or our own sort of cardboard character, the cardboard character of conventional reality. Leary talks about this. And that's probably on the way towards seeing higher or different or more complex levels of reality. you got to kind of pull away from this one. And that can be very disturbing, but it also is in service of deeper insight into the ways in which, as individuals, we are embedded in these larger systems, cultural, technological, historical, cosmic, ecological. And that to grok that, to use a 60s term, requires giving up control, but giving up control is always dangerous. It's scary. What if it goes wrong? What if I'm being manipulated? What if I need to resist this? You know, it's a complicated psychological and, and spiritual conundrum, mm-hmm. this question of control. Mm-hmm. We hate the notion of being vulnerable. And I remember from my LSD trips, at the end of them, I would always ask, what can I bring back? that I will remember and understand. And every time I got this exact same message to just relax. And connecting with what you were just talking about before, you know, the way we connect with all of the dynamics that are swirling around us are through the structures of our mind, the beliefs that we have, the the way that we see the world. And John Lilly was a wonderful uh, insight into all of that I still remember his formula from Center of the Cyclone, 
which I've carried with me for over 40 years. You know, that one, in the province of the mind, what one believes to be true either is true or becomes true within certain limits. These limits are to be found experientially and experimentally. Once found, these limits are further beliefs to be transcended. In the province of the mind, there are no limits. And it was that last line that really grabbed me. And it's interesting that you actually left that last line out of your quoting of that formula. Yeah, it's funny because I've tracked how people use that passage. And people often cut it off at different places. I think it's to emphasize... Uh, Our own well, understanding not, of it? Yes, uh, that's quite a phrase. I ended where I did because the statement in the realm of the mind, there are no limits, is a metaphysical claim. This is the way it is. Where the line before is an injunction. These are things to be done. And that's one thing I was really interested throughout the whole book is to emphasize that it's not like I'm just talking about cosmological or philosophical visions. We're talking about injunctions to explore. That was like Terence's whole raison d'etre. is like, don't listen to me. See what happens with five grams on your back with eye shades in the dark. You know, go do it. Like, see it. Explore it. Transcend it. And it's that operational aspect of the whole thing that I think is really important dimension to it and sets it aside from kind of philosophy as such. Mm-hmm. Not that that last line isn't good. I wanted to emphasize the operational aspect of his view that this wasn't just a claim about transcendence. It was an invitation to see or an invitation to transcend your beliefs and recognize how they both are fulfilled but are also limited. Mm-hmm. I totally respect that. I totally get your point. And maybe we could move towards the notion of the network that you talk about at the end of the book. And in 1972, returning to John Lilly, he wrote, Our future lies with aware, courageous, informed, knowledgeable, experienced individuals in a loosely connected, exploratory, communicating network. Yeah, this is a good place, I think, to wind up because we're at the end of the book and in a way we're probing again with some of the first things we talked about, that there was a moment in that time when the idea of the network was a space for some real utopian possibility. And you'll notice that he talks about individuals here. and In a way, that's the key towards this sort of anarchist or libertarian dimension of experience back then, is that there really was a sense that there was something really profound about the individual, not in the traditional, typical way of the individual is responsible and they make decisions and they, you know, you, you need to have a society where individuals are able to compete in order to, you know, that kind of, it's not like that. It's that we contain within ourselves singularities that can be manifested. And that singularity is a unique character, a prankster, a a shaman, a visionary, a poet, that that sort of sense of almost a bohemian sense of the individual, except for Lily, it's also a scientist. It's also, you know, in that sense of being a free thinker, of being responsible unto yourself. But that alone isn't going to do it. What, What is key then is how do you connect these singularities? 
and the idea of the network as a kind of image, as a metaphor, and as a literal practice really grew in the 1970s in a significant way as it was growing technologically, as people were saying, hey, you know, we could take these huge computers we have sitting in the lab and uh, you know, connect them you know, through the wires. That would be interesting. Let's see what, what happens when we do that. <laughs> so you actually have the emergence of real networks in the technological sense that we talk about today alongside a great sort of hope around the network as the way in which all these sort of singularities could be organized and share information and develop community and develop culture. And that's sort of what we see happening in the development of early internet culture and the whole Earth electronic link and, you know, the pre-World Wide Web internet of alt groups and listservs and a lot of the kind of non-pragmatic parts of the internet, the ARPANET and then the internet, involve these kinds of loose networks of individuals, often eccentric, brilliant, and creative. And so there really was a kind of space for a while where Lily's idea makes a lot of sense. It's not as thinkable today for a wide variety of reasons, but I still think it's quite a noble idea in a lot of ways. And it's still kind of the way I sort of experienced my own life. Like I sort of, you know, think about the people that are important to me, the thinkers who are important to me, the works, the places, the cultures as forming this real dense ecology. And through the patterns of that larger network is where the action is. And, you know, it's kind of probably why the book is the way it is. It's got all this information in it, all these different perspectives, different kinds of language, different kinds of, you know, approaches, philosophical, historical, neurological, ethnobotanical, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There's all these different ways, different kinds of voices in it, because I really experienced thinking and being in the flow of history as a deeply networked process. Yeah, and that reminded me of, you quote Jeffrey Kripal in your book, where he says, reading and writing are the most powerful paranormal technologies that we possess, if only we knew what and how to read. And then you have a line where you say, language and narrative can shape and become or affect experience. I would love for you to talk about reading and writing as these powerful paranormal technologies, because to me this gets at least to some degree to the heart of this whole high weirdness thing. Sure. One way of saying it is that you never have like experience over here and writing over there. There's always a loop between them. The words we use to describe extraordinary experience the shapes and forms and patterns that we recognize in the midst of it, all of these things can be traced back to symbols, to writing in the general sense, cultural inscription, patterns, symbols, ideas, language. And so, you know, there's like pure experience. It's ineffable and it's outside of all of that. And I'm like, maybe. But what counts are the loops between them. But there's a corollary to that which is that, if, and this is kind of what Kripal's pointing to, if extraordinary experience, paranormal in his language, can be seen to be haunted by traces of writing, writing, and then also literally texts, books, some of them anyway, 
have within them traces of the extraordinary. And so reading is not a simply bounded act. When we read, some of the things we read get under our skin. And once they get under our skin, they start changing us. They change how we see things. They change how we read. And then that, in turn, opens us up for other transmissions or other experiences. Books can be infectious, compulsive. H.P. Lovecraft was a figure for all three of the guys that I write about. And in a way, his horror stories are infectious. They kind of get under your skin. You can't get rid of them so easily. And they haunt you a bit. And that's why I talk about him, is to remember that writing has that possibility and that indeed, at least for me, the writing of all three of these guys, in Terrence it's a little obscure because it's really more about his talking than about his writing, which is an important distinction. Nonetheless, it's really the cultural expressions of these guys that have all kind of gotten under my skin and that this book is an attempt to kind of work it out and trace it back. And anybody who's a religious seeker, spiritual seeker, knows deeply how profound books can be. Opening a book to any page, reading just the phrase that you need just that day, having spiritual experiences through reading. And we kind of don't acknowledge that as much because so much of our reading and writing is pragmatic and mundane and associated with school and getting a grade and producing, you know, reports at work. And, you know, there's so much mundane writing. I mean, the first you know, hundred centuries of writing is just like keeping tallies of cows and stuff. You know, it's like totally mundane stuff. But then we realize we can bring the gods into it. We can bring the poems into it. We can bring the cycles of the heavens into it. We can bring rumors and fictions. Oh, wait, now fictions. Ah, writing can become alive with things that were never real. Well, there we go. That's pretty interesting now, isn't it? And, we, you know, these days we don't think about that in terms of writing alone. You know, film does that. Everything does that. But writing, in a way, remains the kind of great mysterium that is at once utterly mundane, quotidian, pragmatic, and sort of woven with these traces, not so much of the beyond or the transcendental, but of the creative, weird, you know, novel aspects or potentials of human experience in a way that keeps them alive. And I hope that my book is also one of those books, you know, that it doesn't just explain or interpret, but to a certain degree initiates. And I have dozens and dozens of books on my shelves that, that initiated me. They didn't just explain or inform or entertain. They did something to me, and I love that effect of them. And so I've always been driven to be that kind of writer. So that's, that's how we're this. Mm-hmm. Your book really put a lot of things together in a brilliant way, I thought. And I enjoyed it very much. And it's been great to talk with you. Excellent. Thanks so much. It was a wonderful conversation. That was Eric Davis. He's a journalist, scholar, and author of Technosis, Myth, Magic, and Mysticism in the Age of Information. His latest book that we were just talking about is High Weirdness, Drugs, Esoterica, and Visionary Experience in the 70s, which focuses on the extraordinary experiences and work of Terence McKenna, Philip K. Dick, and Robert Anton Wilson during the 1970s. There's some great stuff in this book, and I'm going to read a 
few little sections that we didn't get to talk about, but we actually did talk about from different directions. And this is from Eric Davis's book, High Weirdness. We have become thoroughly absorbed into this all-consuming, endlessly spreading, weirdly disincarnating information system. But with the onset of the Internet of Things and the spread of smartphones, sensors, GPS devices, and augmented reality, the network no longer inhabits a separate cyberspace. Instead, it is now invading, reconfiguring, and rewriting our physical and psychic reality, very much the way Philip K. Dick describes. And another piece, he writes, Psychedelic experience resonates with today's networking of consciousness and culture, that contemporary technologies are literally mind manifesting. Consciousness, consensus reality, and even matter itself are increasingly shaped, warped, shattered, and expanded by their use. Thus, a deep familiarity with psychedelic phenomenology is simply a good skill to possess in this era. And the last piece from the book. If we are to embrace the reality of climate change, and I'm slightly paraphrasing this, or slightly editing it and paraphrasing it, just to uh, save space and time. If we are to embrace the reality of climate change, then we have to seek and demand and encounter with a real that is beyond the symbolic frameworks of consciousness and culture, beyond electronic reports, narcissistic loops, and cultural brainwashing. Creatively worked and suitably expanded, the human imagination can serve as an interface to entities and realities that elude normal rationality, language, and cultural symbols. The beyond beckons us, the outside pulls us inside, and the other stages encounters that will change us in ways we cannot control or predict or even necessarily desire. But such is our weird.
And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, have a wonderful week. For more information, check out wgdr.org. 